Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for, for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box that will be at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Uh, good evening from Israel. I don't know if everyone can hear me. It seems that it's a little bit frozen, but I'll talk anyway. I'm not sure who can hear me, who can see me. Um, but it's been another action-packed week. We had uh, the historic flight on Monday from uh, Tel Aviv uh, to the United Arab Emirates, which took uh, Israeli and uh, American officials uh, to Abu Dhabi, uh, a direct flight, uh, which was uh, a really historic uh, event. The idea was to go and and uh, sign uh, agreements, or at least sort of start to uh, file some agreements on various issues from tourism, economic, high-tech, uh, coronavirus, uh, diplomatic, all sorts of issues that working groups. Uh, well, an added element to this was the fact that they flew over Saudi Arabian territory. Uh, this is the first time that El Al has ever flown over Saudi Arabian territory. Uh, the extent of where we are today, the fact that an LL plane was able to fly, fly directly to uh, the United Arab Emirates in an LL plane over Saudi Arabian territory and back again, as it did the following day. This was quite an extraordinary event. Uh, we had Jared Kushner, uh, National Security Advisor uh, from the US as well. Uh, we had uh, the head of the uh, uh, National Security Council in, uh, in Israel, Meir Ben Shabbat, I believe his name is, and a lot of other dignitaries from the foreign, minister, uh, foreign ministry meet with their counterparts uh, in Abu Dhabi. And it was really, what I think what was shown uh, most, I think the, uh, the head of the uh, United Arab Emirates foreign ministry summed it up as in two words as historic and hopeful. And I think that, that's certainly true. And I think what was remarkable wasn't just that we now have uh, open relations with the United Arab Emirates, but they seem to be extremely warm. Uh, I spoke to a few of the reporters who were there in this historic journey because obviously in these type of things, they take quite a large press contingent. Um, and there was uh, quite a few Israeli reporters and they said that they were treated excellently with a real warm embrace. Uh, you know, they got very high level access uh, to senior officials. They were taken on really nice tours where they were shown the history. There was even a, a minyan uh, a Jewish prayer service um, at the hotel they were staying at. They were given kosher food. Um, and basically, they, they all came back raving about the experiences. If you just want to check out some of their Twitter feeds, uh, you can, and you'll just see that everyone who went just can't talk highly enough about the experience and the hospitality they received. So that was an ex a very exciting moment that happened this week. Some expected it to be followed up potentially by the opening up uh, of relations with another Arab country. Jared Kushner was in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, I think he was the last stop uh, and a couple of other places. 
so far there's been no breakthroughs, although Kushner himself did say that he thinks uh, within months, he hopes within months, there'll be at least another Arab country that will join um, the United Arab Emirates in recognizing Israel, establishing, uh, establishing relations and hopefully opening embassies, uh, mutual embassies soon. Uh, another thing that was brought up this week is the whole issue of sovereignty. As we know, uh, part of uh, the deal with the United Arab Emirates was ostensibly to postpone uh, the issue of sovereignty over areas over the Green Line, Judea and Samaria. Uh, it does seem, however, that it's more than a short postponement at best. And at worst, at least according to proponents, it's, it's a indefinite postponement and missing a window of opportunity um, that may or may not come again. Uh, so that issue seems to certainly be off the table. Everyone says, everyone agrees that it's off the table and proponents are very unhappy and opponents uh, are pretty satisfied with that. Um, in, in Gaza, the balloon, uh, the incendiary device attached to balloons threat continued up until yesterday where basically it seems like Israel and Hamas have come to some sort of arrangement, some sort of ceasefire, where Hamas have agreed to stop the incendiary devices and some of the other attacks like attempted cross-border infiltrations, even rockets, uh, in exchange for Israel, uh, repealing some of the measures that they've taken, whether it's not allowing certain things through the border crossings, whether it's not allowing Gazan fishermen too far out into international waters, um, and other sort of things, especially now we, we hear that Gaza started to have some uh, coronavirus cases. So it seems like uh, part of the agreement is to help uh, the Hamas officials because they're extremely worried about the spread of coronavirus in, in uh, Gaza. So it could be that's one of the reasons that they've come to the table. So that's another thing. Um, what we do see uh, quite interestingly is Ismail Haniyeh, the head of Hamas, or one of the heads of Hamas, in, uh, in Beirut this week. The first time he's been back in, I believe, 27 years where, where he was thrown out. Um, and basically he is meeting with Hezbollah officials and other leaders of what we call the other Palestinian factions. That could be Fatah, that could be all sorts of um, other groups. But what we do see is certainly a reaction to what's going on with the UAE and Israel and some other normalization steps, as I said, uh, allowing El Al to fly over Saudi Arabian territory would certainly be one of those. We see that, you know, this is the pragmatic and moderate uh, response from the Arab countries, but then we see the extremist response uh, in what Hamas is doing, what Hezbollah is doing. Obviously, a lot of it being directed from Tehran. Uh, and we see again in Syria, and Israel's had to take some measures, although they have not uh, accepted responsibility for it. But again, uh, uh, for you know to to lessen the Israeli uh, the Iranian sorry uh, footprint in Syria, especially close to the Israeli border. So we can see as the moderate pragmatic forces are trying to get together, uh, trying to uh, create peace, security, and stability in the region. We see that the more extremist elements are also uh, uniting and trying to create uh, some sort of unified response, perhaps a coordinated response. Um, here in Israel. As far as the coronavirus, we saw today a record number of uh, infections. Uh, our previous record, uh, daily record, was, I believe, 2,200. Uh, in the last 24 hours, we had had over 3,000 
cases. So that's a massive uptick. Um, and there's a lot of politics involved around this. Uh, the coronavirus coordinator, uh, Rani Gamsu, who's supposed to be coordinating the, uh, Israel's response to the coronavirus pandemic. And he, uh, after many, many attempts through the coronavirus cabinet, they finally passed what he calls this traffic light system. And the first uh, cities were put on, I wouldn't say lockdown, but more restrictive measures. They're called the red cities. Uh, they are, I believe, 80% uh, largely Arab majority uh, towns and cities. And the other 20%, uh, whatever it is, are ultra-Orthodox. And there's a warning that all ultra-Orthodox cities will come onto that list as well. Uh, this is all playing out against the sort of threats we talked last week about this uh, annual pilgrimage ahead of the Jewish New Year to Oman. That's become a big uh, political um, issue with the ultra-Orthodox parties, again, threatening uh, Gamzu, Professor Gamzu, and even the head of the coalition, Mikizar, threatening him again, saying that uh, he shouldn't be inciting uh, the issue, especially in Ukraine, which has a history of anti-Semitism. And already now we've seen a lot of reports, a lot of videos of uh, Hasidim who have already traveled to Oman to try and get ahead of the restrictions have been attacked by locals, there have been a few anti-Semitic attacks. So some are trying to use that as an excuse to bash the coronavirus coordinator because he wrote a letter uh, a week or so ago uh, to the president of Ukraine asking him to take measures against the influx of uh, uh, pilgrims to, uh, to Oman. So that's become a very big issue. But uh, the, the main sort of politics is again, we're, we're in a bit of a stalemate. Once again, remarkably, there will be no cabinet meeting on Sunday. This is, I believe, the fifth or sixth in a row. And we've got to remember that cabinet meetings have almost never been, uh, you know, not on the agenda. Sometimes they're put off a little bit because the prime minister is away or perhaps there's a, a military or security reason or whatever it is. But basically because the parties cannot agree on an agenda is, is, is pretty unprecedented. Uh, largely, the, the lack of a cabinet meeting has been attributed to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. We're still seething at some of the remarks uh, made by Defence Minister and alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz just uh, on, the, on the day where the government was going to be dissolved. And as we remember, it was rescued at the last minute with this uh, law to extend uh, the extension for the budget uh, for another 120 days. One would think after such a last minute reprieve, the first thing they would be doing is sitting and trying to work out uh, you know, the, the, the issues on the budget, trying to sit down and work out, because the budget is not a simple thing. It can take days and even weeks to put together, and there's a lot of disagreements, a lot of back and forth. And to pass through the Knesset, it can take even days in itself, because each clause has to be passed individually, it has to be debated through committees. The remarkable thing is there has been absolutely no meetings on the budget, not even one. So many are suggesting, and Benny Gantz himself said it today, that he believes that there's no seriousness uh, about the budget. Uh, it was just an excuse to put another uh, get out of the coalition uh, pointer in, in the calendar. And many do not believe that this uh, government will last beyond this 120 day reprieve. Uh, as I said, with no cabinet meeting, that means that the relations between the major players still extremely low. Uh, a real surprise today uh, came across the aisle from the opposition. We had 
the, the largest party in the opposition, the main opposition, Yael Lapid's uh, Yeshatid. Well, Yeshatid is a party which many have claimed, certainly in the good they claim, as being a non-democratic party because it doesn't have primaries and they haven't had uh, for its list and they haven't had uh, even primaries for its leadership since it was formed. And for the first time, someone who is really the right-hand man of uh, Yael Lapid, Ofeshelach, who's number two on the list and has been, as I said, the closest person to Yael Lapid all the way through, came out today and said he no longer has, essentially saying he no longer has faith in uh, Yael Lapid, and there's no growth and there's no progress under Lapid, so he called for immediate primaries and a leadership battle. Uh, some even say that Shalach was uh, considering leaving Yeshatid completely and forming his own party. But this is a real blow uh, for Lapid, especially as his party was starting to grow uh, in the polls. He was seen as the only really game in town against Netanyahu, the only potential uh, sort of uh, candidate contender for prime minister, even though the numbers don't necessarily work well enough for him, but he certainly presented himself as the leader, as the head of the opposition camp. Uh, this is the first time that he's really had this internal conflict, internal opposition, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But the bottom line is, it's the last thing that Yelapid needs at a time where things were looking good for him, as Likud was dropping in the polls, Yeshatid was certainly uh, raising itself, still unable to form a government, but certainly moving in the right direction. But this will certainly put a span in the works for uh, Yelapid's Yeshatid, and it'll be interesting to see how that works its uh, way out. So those are some of the issues that have been going on. There's obviously a lot more to talk about, so I'm happy to have uh, any questions at this point. Great, great timing. I actually lost my internet. Um, <laughs> the first one up is, would you provide an update on the East Bed Pipeline project? Um, I, I, I haven't seen anything recently. Things seem to be moving ahead. There, were, there was a flurry of activity a couple of weeks ago when we had the Cypriot and uh, Greek uh, senior leaders uh, come to Israel to talk about that. Um, there's obviously great opposition to it with Turkey, and Turkey are trying to do something with uh, some of the uh, southern Mediterranean countries there, uh, Libya and, and, and some others. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's anything specifically new to report on that issue. Thank you. Um, what has been the reaction of Israeli Arabs to the diplomatic de developments with the UAE? That's a good question. I haven't seen too much about that. Um, so I can't really speak to that too much. It's, it's an interesting angle, which has not really been talked about in any place that I've seen. Um, there were some of their representatives in the Knesset have said that this is, you know, towing the sort of Palestinian line, that this is treachery. Uh, this is against the Arab uh, League initiative, which basically uh, says that no country should uh, have normalized or open uh, formal relations with Israel until after uh, the Palestinian issue has been resolved through a Palestinian state. That's what the Arab League initiative uh, calls for. So uh, a lot of their leaders in the Knesset, who usually much take a much harder line than the average uh, Israeli Arab citizen, has certainly taken a very negative view to this. Uh, some argue that they take their cue from Ramallah rather than uh, their own constituents uh, in, in Israel itself. Um, but haven't heard too much uh, from within uh, the Israeli Arab uh, population 
the last few days, a lot of attention has been on the Israeli Arab population, but largely because of coronavirus issues. They say that the weddings that are taking place uh, within these uh, cities and towns, sometimes thousands of people, no social distancing, no masks, no measures taken, and they're the fastest growing um, uh, spread. Uh, it's, again, there's a sort of competition between the Arab Emirates and the uh, ultra-Orthodox towns. They, they put out a, a number earlier. As I said, it was 3,000 um, 3, new cases, and they say well over half are new cases are Arab or in the ultra-Orthodox uh, community. So I think that's probably uh, taking a lot of their attention at the moment. But I haven't seen anything specific about uh, the local community's reaction uh, to this with uh, UAE. Thank you. And do you, is there any updates with whether the Saudis will agree to join the UAE and the agreements? Yeah, I mean, they've basically, everywhere that Kushner was, uh, again, even, you know, sometimes we have to sort of see where we are, take, take, take stock of where we are. And, and at the moment, there is no movement, apart from the fact that Saudi Arabia today uh, said that all flights from uh, the Passover, that, and, and from any countries, uh, can pass from Tel Aviv uh, through to Abu Dhabi. So that's, that's a pretty extraordinary step, the fact that they allowed that and they're going to continue allowing that. Um, and, and, you know, people are sort of expecting Bahrain or Oman or Saudi Arabia or Morocco, Sudan, all these countries have been touted to be the next country. And the fact that they haven't, they're sort of, oh, you know, what's going on here? But if, if you look at even their statements, the fact that they don't rule it out, you know, a few years ago, even the mid question wouldn't have been asked. Uh, uh, to, so to get to this point where it's being discussed and it, it's sort of not now and maybe let's see in the future, these are really even historic and uh, unprecedented statements. The fact that none of these countries have ruled it out, you know, forever, which is certainly the, the widespread position in the Arab world for decades, uh, certainly shows where we are when we're living in unprecedented times. So I, I don't see Saudi Arabia. A lot of people, Saudi Arabia will be a massive, massive uh, game changer uh, in, in this area, because while the United Arab Emirates is certainly an important country, there's no more important country in the Arab world than Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia led with normalization, with opening relations with Israel, I think that would be an absolute game changer. So I don't believe we're there yet, uh, and I don't believe that they'll be the next country. Uh, they'll be one of the later countries. Um, but uh, as I said, Jared Kushner seems to be fairly optimistic that within a few months, uh, there will be at least another country, but I, I doubt it will be Saudi Arabia. Understood. So it would appear that Benny Gantz is the one that's been frequently speaking out and criticizing Netanyahu, and with Netanyahu staying fairly silent on the matter. Can you comment on this, little brother? I think, I think that's a little bit generous. Uh, there's been a lot of attacks back and forth. Uh, Netanyahu has certainly uh, done his fair share of uh, accusations across the aisle, or actually within the aisle, because they're both in the coalition. Uh, but also Netanyahu has people who basically speak on his behalf. When you hear uh, people like Nikki Zohar speak up uh, against Gantz, uh, speak against Blue and White, or some of the other people that he has in his coalition or in his party, you know where it's coming from. Um, so it actually, it, it's sort of been a little bit more quiet I would say definitely from the Likud side towards Blue and White recently, their uh, uh, sort of attacks are now being aimed at Naftali Bennett uh, because he's a greater threat to them uh, 
Uh, you know, I talked before about the fact that everyone believes, or the majority of people believe we're going to elections after this 120 day period ends. Uh, but what we are seeing is the person that's the greatest threat to Netanyahu is within his own camp, within the right wing camp, which is Naftali Bennett, who is stealing votes uh, from Likud and every single uh, poll and survey that comes out has the Likud going down a few more seats um, and Naftali Bennett going up a few seats. So there's been a clear strategic decision to target Naftali Bennett. You can see it. There was a really coordinated attack on Bennett by three senior Likud uh, uh, um, uh, government ministers, all attacking Bennett on the same issue at exactly the same time. I believe it was on Sunday. And interestingly, today, with everything going on, Likud revealed um, a, a new member of their party, who is Shuli Mo'alem, who is a former uh, member of Knesset for what was Bayat UD, the Jewish home, which has now become Yamina, but essentially it's Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked's uh, party. And the fact that obviously Likud and Netanyahu himself had been scrambling around trying to find a representative from the religious Zionist uh, public, which is obviously... A, a, a target community for both Yamin and Likud, trying to get a big name to show that Likud is really the home of the religious Zionist uh, community. And obviously the, the person that they came up with, and I can guarantee you there were plenty of uh, efforts in, in all sorts of directions. They came up with Shuli Ma'alam, which to my mind is not a massive name. Uh, it's more of a poke in the eye than a real serious game changer. She's not a person who brings a massive community. She's a very nice woman. She's done some good legislative work in the past, but she's not a game changer. She's not someone that brings a massive community with her. But the fact that everything else that's going on, economy, coronavirus, United Arab Emirates, Hamas, Hezbollah, that Netanyahu took time out of his day to take pictures and to welcome her to the party officially and hold a big sort of, you know, uh, uh, to do about it shows exactly where the main threat is. So it's, it seems that there's, there's less... Uh, sort of sniping towards blue and white, which certainly hasn't gained in the polls, and more towards uh, Naftali Bennett and his Yemeni party. Thank you. Um, so I know we have discussed this before, but has anything come to light as to why Netanyahu didn't include Gantz in the UAE negotiations? Well, his uh, reason that he's given open, openly uh, is that he was worried about leaks. First of all, that's a bit of a slap in the face that you can't trust so-called your coalition partner, your alternate prime minister, defense minister, foreign minister. But at the end of the day, it's quite clear that Netanyahu wanted all of the glory for himself. He didn't want, because if you give someone a heads up, then obviously they're going to have press releases ready, comments ready. They're going to demand to be involved somehow, maybe to, uh, to be on the same phone calls, to be in the same press releases, to be in the same... You know, I, I've seen it from the inside myself, you know, that the earlier you get ahead of these kind of things, the more you can control it. And Netanyahu certainly wanted to control it. And we've been hearing, you know, dozens of messages ever since this came out. And it's all been about Netanyahu. I did this. I prepared for this. This was my vision. This was, and even Netanyahu has even coined the whole sort of enterprise after himself, saying this is the Netanyahu doctrine of peace for peace rather than land for peace. And the fact that he's uh, coined his own doctrine after himself sort of, sort of shows how much he wants this to be associated with himself. So I think at the end of the day, he just wanted all the attention for himself. And, you know, he, he held an emergency press conference yesterday. 
and all the attention was in the uh, United Arab Emirates with the, with the, uh, with the, with the trip there with uh, Jared Kushner, etc. And he, again, diverted the attention back to himself. Uh, so no one was left in any sort of uh, doubt who was leading this, who was responsible for this. You know, he made sure that even on the plane, he had over the loudspeaker, his voice being played. Uh, he made sure that he put it on his Facebook. He made sure that it went out to the media. So Netanyahu really wanted to get a lot of play and continue because there's going to be an event, I believe, in November or October uh, in Washington between the main players in this. Uh, so there's going to be a lot more play on this. Uh, and Netanyahu quite simply wants to keep it all for himself. Oh, I was unmuted. Uh, do you not think that Dalan was very heavily involved with the UAE coming to the table? With who? Who was? Dahlan? Dahlan, yeah. Dahlan. Um, I, I've heard his name talked about uh, in the background. I don't really know what interest that would be uh, for him to be too heavily involved because this is not something that's gone down well necessarily in the, uh, in the Palestinian uh, territories. Uh, Dahlan certainly sees himself still as a, uh, an opponent of Mahmoud Abbas. So I'm not sure if this may be as, as a sort of... Uh, someone who's seen in a, in a positive way on the international scene, maybe to ingratiate himself with the Americans, uh, because certainly the Americans and much of the international community, some uh, behind the scenes are fed up with Mahmoud Abbas. So it could be Dahlan was involved somehow, or got himself involved somehow, but I certainly don't see his fingerprints too prominently uh, around this, but it could be that he was involved in some level. Will the ongoing demonstrations have any actual results? I doubt it. Um, it depends what you call results. Will, will, will they achieve their objective of having Netanyahu resign? No, clearly not. Um, unless they really are stepped up to a massive level. I mean, we're talking about far, far beyond many times what it is today. But at the moment, even the big numbers, 10,000, maybe even 20,000 again, um, Largely, this is seen as, whether it is or not, it's seen as a sort of largely left-wing uh, uh, demonstration. Very few right-wingers at least are prominent in it. Um, these are not people who would have voted for it. And, you know, every now and again, the media manages to get a few individuals who said they voted Likud, they consider themselves right-wing, and you even get some hangers-on, like, uh, you know, we talked about Oman and the Hasidim, uh, who, who make a pilgrimage there. So now they've started joining the demonstrations because they're so angry at Netanyahu not allowing them into the Ukraine. But again, the large majority of them are not people who would vote for uh, Netanyahu. Um, and he still remains the leader of the most popular party, even according to the worst polls uh, for the prime minister. He still remains in that position and the most likely to form any future government at this point in time, at least. Um, so I don't believe that they will necessarily have an effect there. Again, if we see more sectors of Israeli society join this demonstration, some more openly centrist and right of center, uh, large groupings join this, with, um, then maybe we'll see some change. But again, it, it, it's sort of, it's a disparate message. And there's, there's, there's a lack of focus uh, exactly what the message is because some people want to make the issue about his legal proceedings some about the economy, some about the fact that they just don't like him. You know, there's all sorts of uh, issues and you have so many different voices coming from all different directions. So it's very hard to pinpoint, you know, it's just basically it's the anti-Bibi 
opposition camp at the moment. Um, but I do believe that, uh, and, and I've spoken about this before, as the economy continues to free fall, uh, as the numbers of coronavirus go up, more and more people will suffer. And a lot of them in the lower socioeconomic uh, communities who are more historically aligned with the right wing and they could in particular, uh, will start to worry uh, that it could, and they already have started to worry that it could. So perhaps if, if those sort of uh, communities start becoming involved in the protest, then they'll start to worry the Prime Minister a lot more. At the moment, I think he feels pretty secure in, in what's happening. Understood. So we have one last question for today. What's happening with the proposals to change the law of return and its distancing from emerging Jewish communities? Is Israel looking inwards right now? Um, well, as someone involved in this issue, I can tell you that, this, that with the emerging uh, Jewish communities, the descendants of Jews and some others, uh, the, the stance hasn't really changed. It's, let's just say they were pushed uh, into uh, formulating a decision, the interior ministry, which is involved in who gets to make Aliyah, uh, come to Israel, visas, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it, it's a position that has long been known, but they were forced by the I believe it was the Supreme Court to, to explain their decisions so they came out officially that they are against this, uh, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say mass conversions because there's no thing as such thing as a mass conversion, each one is uh, done individually, but the fact that uh, they're done, you know, sort of in groups, uh, it's, it seems problematic by the ultra-Orthodox uh, authorities which run the interior ministry, it's run by Ari Deri of the Shas, the Safadi ultra-Orthodox party. Um, so that's, that, there's nothing really new there. Uh, unfortunately, um, but as far as the law of return, well, that was the, we talked about that I believe a week or two ago. That Bezalel Smotrich wanted to change the law of return from uh, someone at the moment. The law is if anyone has one Jewish grandparent, uh, then they can uh, immigrate to Israel. So he wanted to bring it down one level and say anyone who had one Jewish parent, even if it was the father, uh, instead of one Jewish grandparent. And basically, in the end, he could only rouse about three people supporting him, so he shelved his bill. He said he's postponed it, but with only three people possibly voting for it at this time, uh, it's unlikely to change because it's such, uh, the, the law of return is such a, a, a difficult issue to even open up. And even for those who may be sympathetic towards uh, Smotrich's viewpoint, uh, unlikely to vote for it because they know what a can of worms that they'll be opening up with even looking at this law. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to our clo the close of our webinar. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today, Ashley. Absolutely. On Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern, we will have Alan Behrman here discussing China disrupts the Middle East. Thank you all again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.